Last time we looked at an overview of First and Second Samuel. This this evening we're going to begin uh, expositional study through that book. So turn to First Samuel chapter one. First Samuel chapter one. Not sure if you noticed, but all the songs that we sang this evening, all were prayers to the Lord. Lord, I need you. Your beauty fills our eyes. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And I love you, Lord. And so our our posture uh, really began this evening with one of prayer. And that topic will uh, will fill this section that we're going to look at as well. Do you remember when we were looking at Ruth, Ruth chapter 3 uh, specifically, and we saw that God often uses you to be the answer to your own prayers. Do you remember Boaz prayed that Ruth would find protection? And God answered that prayer by putting Boaz in a position where he would serve as God's protection for Ruth. Well, here in 1 Samuel, we have a different picture of how prayer works. Because Hannah is in a a desperate situation, but she, unlike Boaz and like we often are, she was in a position where she could not be the answer to her own prayer. That is, she could not serve as God's instrument to accomplish uh, the answer to this prayer. She had to have a unilateral work of God done on her. That is, God was going to have to be the one who who uh, removed from her her barren womb and and replaced it with one that was fruitful. Hannah's in a desperate situation, but she has no way to use her own strength. She has to depend upon God. And, and so she has the same sort of posture as Boaz has and as we all should have regularly, and that is one of humility and prayer. So whether we can be the answer to our own prayer or whether God can use us to be the answer to our own prayer or whether we can't, our posture ought to be the same. Humility and prayer. We're going to... Uh, we're going to consider chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, but I'll just read chapter 1 to begin with this evening. So let me invite you to follow along as I read. This is the Word of God. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephraimite, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. 
Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. God rewards the prayer of the humble. God rewards the prayers of the humble. There are three main parts to this passage of Scripture. Number one, Hannah's prayer. Number two, God's answer. And number three, Hannah's response to God's answer. That will be in chapter 2. So first, Hannah's prayer in verses 1 through 18. Hannah's prayer. In order to get acquainted with this story we need to first be introduced to the characters. The first character listed in the text is Elkanah. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And then quickly we are introduced to the second and third characters, his two wives, listed in verse 2, Hannah and Peninnah. Elkanah was married to both of them. In verse 3, we're introduced to Hophni and Phinehas, two priests serving at Shiloh that we'll learn more about later. And we're also introduced to Eli in verse 3, but only in passing. He's just mentioned as the father of Hophni and Phinehas. His formal introduction will come in verse 9. These are the initial characters. Elkanah, Hannah, Peninnah, 
Eli and his two sons. But the spotlight in our passage is not on all of these characters. It's primarily on Hannah and Eli. But remember, in terms of the bigger picture, these characters only serve as the backdrop for the bigger character that that really shines in chapters 1 through 7, and that is Samuel. The first seven chapters of 1 Samuel are about the decline of Eli and the rise of Samuel as God's great prophet. So now that the characters have been introduced, let's get to the action. And it starts out pretty quickly at the end of verse 2. It says, And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. The story begins with Hannah's distress. And the setting for that distress is found there at the end of verse 2. Peninnah had children, and Hannah was barren. We learn in verses 3 through 5 that Elkanah was a man of faith. Every year, he would take his family to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was at that time. Remember, they wasn't moved to Jerusalem or Zion until David became king. So prior to that, it was in various places, but, but here it settled down in the city of Shiloh. Elkanah would go up once a year, probably for one of the main, the three main feasts. It may sound like an insignificant thing that Elkanah, a Jew, would go to the tabernacle to worship, especially since he lived within the same region in which the temple or the tabernacle resided. Shiloh, the city, if you look at the map in in the back of your Bible, you'll see that Shiloh is actually in the region of Ephraim. That's where uh, Elkanah is from. So we might think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It would be like us going to... Detroit or Grand Rapids or something. It's it's within our own state. It's not that big of a deal for him to do that. But consider in the not too distant future of Israel's history, you had Micah in Judges chapter 17, who was also from Ephraim. And the house of God was also in Shiloh at that time, Judges 18 tells us. And yet Micah didn't want to go to the house of God to worship. Instead, do you remember what he did? He set up idols within his own house. Remember, he stole money from his mom and then set up an idol within his own house. It was too inconvenient for him to go to to the place of worship which was in his own region. And so the fact that Elkanah did go is significant. He would not compromise what God had commanded. He would not set up some kind of an altar in his own house, but do it according to God's demands. And so every year... The text says he would take his family and he would give them the prescribed offerings. Notice this is where Hannah's distress really comes out in verse 4. The day came that Elkanah sacrificed. He would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, she didn't have any children. She was barren. But Elkanah loved Hannah and so he wanted to make sure that she did not feel left out or um, uncared for, and so he actually gave her a double portion. Notice why Hannah was distressed, though, because it wasn't just that she didn't have children. Yes, she was barren. Verse 2 and verse 5 tell us that. But to add to her distress, notice verse uh, 2 again, the end of verse 2, and Peninnah had children. And verse 5 uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, 
Apparently, she had many children because it says sons and daughters. So, at least four children she had. Peninnah was fruitful. It was like Leah. You remember the, the kind of the conflict that went on between Rachel and Leah because Leah had no problem having children for many of the years of her marriage to Jacob, but, but it took a while for God to open the womb of Rachel. Hannah's in that similar position. And to add further to Hannah's distress, notice verse 6. Peninnah was a jerk about it, wasn't she? Verse 6, her rival, Peninnah, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. In verse 7, it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, Peninnah, would provoke her, Hannah, and so she, Hannah, wept and would not eat. So it wasn't she just brought it up one time and said, you know, I have more children than you type thing, but it was every year. This was kind of the, the opportunity for Peninnah to to uh, to show her stripes, so to speak. It's one thing for Hannah to be barren. It's another thing for the rival wife to be fruitful. But it's a whole different level when the rival wife keeps bringing it up. You know, he would give her all these different sacrifices for all of her ch- children. And she probably made a big scene about it. Oh, thank you, my sweet husband, for all these portions for our children. Can you help me carry them? I can't quite carry all of them. There's so many sacrifices because I have so many kids. What about you, Hannah? Do you need some help? Oh, that's right. I forgot. You don't have any children. You see, it was that kind of provoking, that provocation that she would do year after year year to Hannah that would make her load feel even greater. And notice, notice how Elkanah tries to handle the problem. First, you remember, he gave the double portion to try to show that she was loved. But notice in verse 8 what else he does. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, when he saw that in verse 7 that Hannah had wept and would not eat because she had been provoked, he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than seven or, or than ten sons? This is a classic husband move here, isn't it, ladies? He doesn't know what to say and how to console her during this time while she's crying. And so he says, you know, I know you want to have children really badly, and I know that you don't have, have any, but don't cry. At least you still have me. Right? Wouldn't you rather have me than a wagon load of children? It'd be a lot to care for. That doesn't quite work, does it? Hannah is in a similar position to empty Naomi. Remember, she left Bethlehem full and came back empty. In fact, the words in verse 10 really connect us to that same character. That is, it connects Hannah to Naomi. Look at verse 10. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept Bitterly. If you look in the margin of your Bible, you see that's bitter of soul. It's, it's actually the word Mara. Remember when Naomi came back to Bethlehem and they said, Oh, lovely, lovely, what has happened to you? She said, Don't call me lovely anymore. Her name is Naomi. That's what it means. Don't call me lovely. Call me Mara. Call me distressed, greatly distressed. That's the word that's used here in the Hebrew in verse 10. 
It is Hannah. She, Hannah, was Mara. Pray, and, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. As we saw in the book of Ruth, when God's people are in a position of emptiness, that's a great place for God to work, isn't it? It's, a, it's an opportunity for hope and for God to provide resources and strength and for God to do a powerful work that no one else can question where it came from. And that, I think, is what's happening here as well. So for you, are you experiencing a time of grief right now because of some kind of loss? Don't ignore your grief. Don't act like it's not there. But recognize that your grief may be like that dissonant chord which is a prelude to that great crescendo which God brings about great good, great blessing. God providentially works. So what do we do when our grief is great and God's blessings seem far away? Well, we learn from Hannah, don't we? And what did Hannah do in verses 9-11? through 11? She prayed to God. Hannah's promise and prayer is seen in verses 9-11. through 11. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple, and she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow, and here's the promise. God, if You will give me a child, I will give him back to You. That's why the title of this message is A Gift from God, A Gift for God, or A Gift to God. That's really what she's doing. She's accepting this gift from God and saying, God, if You give this gift to me, I will give it back to You. Don't be afraid to go to God with your grief. Maybe you don't feel like you can approach God until you get on a level playing field where your grief is as in the past. But don't be afraid to go to God in your grief. Read through the Psalms. That's, where, that's when the psalmists go to God, isn't it? You think God is unconcerned about you, His child? God will come to you in your time of grief. So go, so go to Him humbly. Hannah makes a promise in verse 11. She wanted a son so badly that she was willing to give him back to the Lord. And notice how she addresses God in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, or in other words, the sovereign Lord of all the universe, You who control all things, including my womb, I pray to You now. I believe that You are in charge of it all, and I know that You have the power to give me a son, and so I pray to You now. See, so you recognize God's sovereign control over all things. In verses 12 through 18, Hannah is vindicated. Hannah is vindicated. The reason I say that is because when Eli looks at Hannah from a distance, he thinks she's drunk. Hannah knew that she was praying from an upright heart. And we know that Hannah was seeking a request that would benefit God and His glory. But the priest Eli, he did not know that. Remember, Eli is serving as a priest during an extremely troubled time in Israel's history. We're not too far removed from the time of the judges. In fact, this comes on the heels of the time of the judges. Eli and uh, Samuel actually serve as the last judges. Certainly, Eli, during that troubled period of Israel's history, had seen drunk people come into the tabernacle, right? He had seen them come in drunk, and he wanted to protect the glory of God in this case. 
And as he's sitting near the door, he sees a lady across the courtyard who looks like she's drunk. And so he takes it upon himself to clean up the temple and get her out of there in order to defend God's glory. But Hannah defends herself and Eli realizes that she's not drunk in verse 17. He responds by commending her and praying for her. Notice, Eli answered, verse 17, Go in peace and may the God of Israel, whenever you see that, may the God, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. He's saying, may God, I pray that God will grant your petition that you have asked of Him. Now Hannah has someone else praying for her as well. And God answers Hannah's prayer. God answers Eli's, or yes, Eli's prayer in verses 19 through 28. So that's the second main point. Hannah's distress. Hannah's prayer, excuse me, verses 1 to 18. And then God's answer to Hannah's prayer in verses 19 to 28. In verses 19 and 20, Hannah conceives. God was listening to Hannah, and He was concerned about Hannah. He was concerned about her barrenness. And He reached down and opened her womb and caused her to conceive. Verse 19, They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, which means, I have asked him of the Lord, or I have requested him from God. God has heard my request. That's what the name Samuel means. Now, it's one thing to make a foxhole prayer, right? Hannah was in a desperate situation. God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. But it's another thing to follow through on that promise, isn't it? I wonder how many soldiers have made that prayer. God, if you'll rescue me from imminent death, I will give my life to you. And then God does rescue them and they don't give their life to God. They never follow through on their promise. But Hannah was not that kind of person. She prayed in the foxhole of her distress and made a promise that she would follow through on her promise. And in, despite uh, all of the opportunities for her to justify the situation, I'm sure Satan could have tempted her during this time to hang on to that baby. You know, you, you, could, you could justify it by saying that, you know, God would understand. It's your only child. Peninnah has all these children. She hasn't dedicated one to the Lord. So why not keep this one? Maybe the next one. If God gives another son, then, then she'll give that one. But that's not what she did. When the baby was weaned, she took him to the tabernacle with the approval of her husband. Verse 28. Um, let's go back up to uh, verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. She said, I'm not going back to the tabernacle until he's weaned. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, a baby was not weaned until around three years old. It was much more, obviously, agricultural society. And, uh, and it was harder to find, obviously, pasteurized milk. Um, they didn't have Amazon. What's that? Ger- Gerber's? No, Gerber wasn't in existence as far as I know. So, um, so as a result, they would wait till the the baby was much more much stronger, and so probably at the age of three years old, she finally takes Samuel to the tabernacle. And in verses 24 through 28, when she brings Samuel to Eli, 
she also bring some sacrifices. Notice verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took up with her uh, took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah flower and a jug of wine. Now the most reliable manuscripts, there's no footnote there in New America Standard, but the most reliable manuscripts, instead of a three-year-old bull, have three bulls. And that seems to be more consistent with what the priestly sacrifice was. If a person was uh, supposed to be put into the office of the priesthood, he was supposed to bring with him three bulls, one ephah of flour, and six gallons, uh, a six-gallon jug of wine. That's what these other two items are, so it makes more sense that those early manuscripts are correct, that, it, that she actually brought three bulls up. Whatever the case, they presented the sacrifices to the Lord, and amazingly, Hannah left her one and only son there to serve at the temple. She worshipped the Lord in verses 25 to 28. And then Samuel, look at the end of verse 28, and he worshipped the Lord there. Again, showing that he's probably not an infant at this time, probably more um, three or four years old, perhaps. So what happens when God responds spectacularly to our humble cries for mercy? What happens when God answers our prayers? How do we respond? So we have Hannah praying, God responding. How do we respond back? We just kind of go back to our lives without thinking about it? Well, well, chapter 2 is the answer to that. Hannah responds with praise to God, doesn't she? In verses 1 through 10. Hannah had something to sing about. The Lord had given her a son. God was behind it all. God had answered the specific prayer that she asked. She was joyful because of her costly giving. She could thank God for that, that she actually was able to follow through on that by the power of His grace. She also was able to praise Him because of His providential work in all things. First, Hannah praises God for His salvation of her in verses 1-3. through Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. Hannah praises God for His salvation of her. And then in verses 4-8, through eight, Hannah praises God for how God works in salvation generally. Hannah praises, for, praises God for how He works in salvation generally. Hannah recognizes that she was ready to fall, but God raised her up. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the people gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. Hannah praises God for His salvation of her specifically, of His salvation in general, that He lifts up the humble. And then Hannah, verses 9 and 10, praises God for His future visible rule. That is, Hannah praises God for His coming kingdom. Verse 9, He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 
Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Hannah recognizes something that we all must take to heart and we must not forget, and that is that God not only knows the distress of His people, but God also comes to to our aid in times of distress. Have you known that for yourself? Have you experienced distress? Have you experienced deep distress, Mara? And you've and yet you've seen God powerfully show you mercy. The prayer and praise that Hannah presents here to God is a prayer with big eyes. That is that she sees the events of her life as part of something much bigger. Yes, God has responded to, responded to one single request, but that single request serves as an example in the eyes of Hannah of how God works on a larger scale. Did you notice that in her prayer? First, verses 1-3, through three, God, You have saved me. You have rescued me. But then, verses 4-8, through eight, she expands it. And she says how God saves uh, in, a, in a larger scope, in a larger way. And then she moves on even to a larger scope than that by talking about His future and coming kingdom she recognizes that God accomplishes whatever He wants and all of His workings are designed to bring about maximal glory to Himself and and maximal good for His people. And we also know that something that Hannah didn't fully understand at the time, and that is that Samuel is a part of the larger narrative of God's dealing. That God was doing something much bigger. She recognized that God, yes, is working in my specific situation and God is working in the bigger picture, but she didn't understand what the bigger picture was at the time. Do you realize that? We do. We see the bigger picture of how God used Samuel to be the mouthpiece of God in place of Eli and his family and to speak on behalf of God, to be the very one who would anoint King David, who would in turn be the father of the Messiah. So four points of application here in closing. Number one, since this passage is about prayer, we we should not be surprised that, that one of the points of application is this. Give your burdens to God in prayer. Give your burdens to God in prayer. Psalm 142, 2 says, I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell trouble before Him. Don't be afraid in the midst of your pain in the midst of your Mara, to go to God in prayer. That is often the best place to find God's mercy when you are at your wit's end. Hannah is in a position of weakness. She can do nothing to make herself fruitful. True power is not found in position or prestige, but in our position before God. It's not in our position here on this earth, but in our position before God. God is looking to exalt the humble. And Hannah is an example of humility, isn't she? She recognizes that she cannot force, she cannot force correct her position. You know, I'd like to be here, but I'm not. I'm over here, and so I'm going to just force this to happen. She can't. She has to come to God humbly. She needs God. And we need God. So we need to bring our burdens to God in prayer. Number two. God is a gracious and powerful God. 
God is a gracious and powerful God. This morning I mentioned during our study of Christians in the workplace that our view of God is often affected by our own earthly fathers. So maybe you see God as as an authoritarian, someone who doesn't care about your individual needs. But what we learn here is that God is a gracious God and He responds lovingly to the prayer of His child, Hannah. And He powerfully works behind the scenes to bring about the answer to that prayer. Let's look back through the text and and I want to show you the fingerprints of God in this story. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Verse 5. At the end of verse 5 it says, But the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Verse 19. After she prayed, the end of the verse says, the Lord remembered her. In other words, He acted in such a way that He he worked for her benefit. That's what the idea of remember means in the Scripture. Verse 20. Middle of the verse says, she gave birth to a son. And His name means, because I have asked Him of the Lord. See, that's God working. That's God who responded to that request. Verse 27. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. And then chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It's God who brings about life. Hannah recognized this. God not only is a gracious God to hear her request and to respond to her request, but also to respond in a powerful way. God was behind it all. He was the one who closed her womb. He was the one who opened her womb. God is the gracious and powerful God. Number three, you are a steward of God's resources, not an owner. You are a steward of God's resources, not an owner. Everything that you have is from God. Nothing you have is your own. You, what do you have, Paul says, that you did not receive? Okay, try to think up of all the things that are under your possession. What do you have that you did not receive from God? Of course, the answer is nothing. All that you have comes from God. So don't be afraid to commit yourself and your family to God. You are a steward of what God has given to you. Notice the example of Hannah. Again, chapter 1, verse 11. We'll go back through the text here quickly. Chapter 1, verse 11. The second part of the verse, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Verse 22. Middle of the verse, I will not go up until this child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Verse 28. So also I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. Hannah recognized an important principle that we need to recognize, and that is that we are only stewards, managers of what God has given to us, including our own children. And so I'm talking primarily to parents right now. How devastating would it be if God were leading one of your children to serve Him in a country that is far away from here? What would it mean for you if you would only see your children and grandchildren only one time every year or one time every two years? What would it mean? We're going to see next time that that is all that Hannah got. You know, we might think, well, she, she's, she sent them over to the tabernacle, but she's there every day. That's not the case. 
She only was able to see Him one time per year. But do you know, God had not forgotten her. God had not forgotten how she dedicated her one and only son back to God in the service of the temple. He was merciful, and as we'll learn next time, He gave her five more children. Now, I can't promise you that if you allow one of your children to go to a foreign field to be a missionary or something like that, that God's going to 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 replace that child, so to speak, with, with another child or more children. But what I can promise you on the authority of God's Word is that when you release the grip that you have on your child as if you own them and allow God to take him or her wherever he wants that child to go, you can have peace with God knowing that you are his manager, his steward of God's resources, right? You don't own your son or daughter. They are gifts from God. And your job is simply to manage them for a short period of time and allow them to be used for God's service in whatever way is necessary. And God's not going to call all of our children to the mission field, most likely. Okay? He, we, we need godly believers in the workplace, in Royal Oak, in Madison Heights, in, in the surrounding area. We need good, solid church members who, who are helping to build up the saints here. Okay? So, so don't think... Um, don't think that, that uh, the highest calling that anyone can have is to the mission field. Certainly that is a high calling. But remember, our highest calling is to discipleship. But if God were to call one of your children or all of your children, how would you respond? I think too often in our day, in our society, we treat our children as idols. We live vicariously through them. We try to live the life that we couldn't live. You know, we, we had a difficult upbringing. We want to give them a better upbringing. We didn't, you know, play sports as well as we wanted to. We want to play sports through them. We didn't, you know, play music as well, so we want to do it through them. And, and, and we got to be careful with that sort of mentality. Our children are resources given to us for God to manage for a time. And we need to be like Hannah, willing to... Give them to God for His purposes wherever He calls them to go. Number four, you are not the main character in your own story. You are not the main character in your own story. I said that this story is about Hannah, but this story really is not about Hannah. It's not really about Eli, ultimately. It's not even about Samuel. Remember, Samuel is only a prelude to King Saul and then the main human character in the books of Samuel, which is King David. But do you know the books of Samuel are not ultimately about David either. They're about God. Because God is the hero of every biblical story. God is the hero of every human story. And God is the hero of your story. Think about it this way. If God were writing a book on the events of your life, what kind of details would He include? I think certainly He would include some details about your faithfulness, how you were properly responded to Him in times of trial. But you know, if He wrote a book about you, the hero of that book would be God. Because any act of righteousness that you accomplished could only be accomplished through the strength that God supplies, supplied. And so, we need to see ourselves in light of the bigger picture. 
we are, are, are the story is not about us. It's about God. God is writing a story of His grace and using us as one of His illustrations. We, in many cases, are trophies of His grace. That's what I think one of the messages of the book of Job is all about. You know, Satan comes to God and says, uh, or, or God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's a trophy of my grace. He loves me for me, not for my gifts. Satan says, yeah, no, I don't think so. He loves you for your gifts. And to prove that, I'll take them away from him. God says, go ahead, do it. He'll still serve me. He does. And then Satan says, well, he still has his health. And anyone would do anything for their health. So so if you just let me take that, then certainly he'll curse you. God says, take his health, but you can't take his life. And in the end, God is shown to be vindicated. Because God showed Himself to be worthy to be served apart from His gifts. So the story of Job really is not about Job. It's about God. That that Job is simply a trophy of His grace. He's simply an illustration of how glorious God is. And that's what our lives are about as well. It's not about us and all the great acts of faith that we have done or will do. It's about being used as an illustration by God show the angels in heaven who are watching right now that we love our God and that He is worthy to be praised no matter what He takes away from us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may we be trophies of Your grace. That is, people who recognize our role within the greater picture of what You are doing to accomplish Your purposes. We don't even see the, the, all of the details of your, the, the great landscape that You've laid out um, in, in, in creation. Show Your great majesty. One day we will, and our faith will be sight, and it will be clear that, that it was worth it all when we see Jesus. Our trials at that time will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all of our sorrows will erase. And so we pray that You'd help us to bravely run the race until we see our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.